I'm going to be talking about the state in Africa, and I'll use that opportunity to recapitulate some of the earlier things I said about Child and the Urban Revolution and Rodney and so forth, to try and because I think there is a, a tendency still for people to reproduce uh, blanket notions of African history or the nature of African societies, which are really not justified. I mean, I think there is a point in, in speaking about Africa as a, as a single thing, but we mustn't do so at the expense of its differences and variety. But to go back to the original conception, I mean, the notion of the state is clearly critical in, in the light of Morgan and Charles and Engels' attempt to understand world history in terms of societies that are organized by classes and the state, those which are organized by kinship and marriage or something similar. So I believe that it's still worthwhile as long as we don't get overexcited about the strength of our typologies, it's still worthwhile to think of human societies as uh, in terms of three types. One of which, as I said, we might call tribal or based on kinship, and which is essentially classless, although that doesn't mean that it's a society without inequality. There are significant differences of age, generation, gender, and so on. But Jack Goody, in his work, I mean, produced a large number of books trying to show that there were not classes in sub-Saharan Africa, traditionally, that were significantly differentiated in terms of their lifestyles. And he wrote a book called Cooking, Cuisine, and Class, which was an attempt to show that Africa never had a high cuisine and a low cuisine, a, a peasant food and an upper-class food. There is an elaborate culture of flowers that differentiates the upper classes in Eurasia that appears to have been missing in Africa and so on and so forth. The basic idea then was that African societies were not perfectly equal but they had not taken their class differentiation to the point that was normal on the Eurasian continent. And he understood this following child as being the result of the failure of African agriculture to develop along the path of intensification that produced the classes of Eurasia, the Eurasian civilizations. And I also mentioned, and I'll talk about it on Wednesday in relation to South Africa, the dominant social form of the 20th century was something that I call national capitalism, which is the management of accumulation money and markets by central bureaucracy in the interests of a, a national citizen body. And this uh, form has not really taken root in Africa to a great extent. Although if it has, then it took root in South Africa in a very peculiar form, which we will discuss, and perhaps even Rhodesia, 
but not in the rest of Africa, at least not until now. So what I do is, I think it's useful to conceive of the African continent as divided into three broad regions. The north, which contains Egypt and some of the most oldest uh, agrarian civilizations, bordering on the Mediterranean, linked to the Near East. The middle, East, Central and West Africa, in which uh, states and cities were weakly developed, and I'll discuss that in a bit more detail. And uh, South Africa, some elements of Southern Africa, settler South Africa, that made a kind of distorted move towards national capitalism at the same rate as everyone else in the 20th century. My argument is that North Africa never made the transition to capitalism, so far. I believe that one way of understanding the 20th century in, in the middle belt, you might say, is that whatever weakly stratified societies were there before uh, made the, uh, the, the shift towards Charles' urban revolution in the 20th century. In other words, they became urbanized state societies in which elites lived off the intensive production of agricultural surpluses, uh, mostly for export, but uh, not exclusively so. So my argument is that when much of the world in the 20th century, especially Asia, but also parts of Latin America and Eastern Europe and so on, were making a transition towards uh, national capitalism, African societies of the Middle Belt, usually called Sub-Saharan Africa, essentially embraced Charles' uh, urban revolution, both during the colonial period and especially after it. So the, the development problem becomes how uh, the bulk of Africa could make the transition from agricultural civilization to something else, whether it be capitalism or whatever, and in the meantime, thanks to our glorious leadership, South Africa could even be described as making the transition back to agrarian civilization in some form. So this has the advantage of making all three regions of Africa more like each other in terms of political economy than they have been for a very long time. That's, I mean, obviously this is a grotesque exaggeration, but I think it's important when, by the time on Friday, we consider the way forward for African societies. If we ask, you know, which parts of Africa and when were relatively urbanized and developed states, I mean, obviously Egypt from an early time, and related to Egypt, the Sudan and uh, Ethiopia. I mean, look, it's, this is still uh, an evolving uh, subject for history and archaeology, just exactly what was the role of the Ethiopian highlands in the developments of Egypt. We know that the Sudan was always connected very strongly to the Nile Valley civilization in several times groups from there taking over. 
I mean, all of this is discussed in great detail by Sheikh Amtad Jop in The African Origins of Civilization, but perhaps we need more up-to-date history than that. The Sudan is particularly important for those who would draw a distinction between Africa north of the Sahara and Africa south of the Sahara, because the Sudan is east of the Sahara. And Sudan is at the crossroads of two main routes, north-south, the Nile, and east-west, the Savannah, south of. So you can go from the Sudan to the Mediterranean and to the Atlantic in Senegal without any hindrance, which makes the Sudan historically, you know, a very important crossroads in Africa. I mean, it's interesting that, that when the British made a kind of a, a new Anglo-Indian superstate in the late 19th century, Sudan was the second most prestigious uh, colonial posting because of its absolutely strategic value in relation to the Red Sea, Suez, India, and uh, points west. In fact, that's also the reason why early British social anthropology was dominated by people studying the Sudan, people like Evans Pritchard and Godfrey Leinhardt and Seth Nadell and so forth. So, I mean, the whole of Africa really needs to be seen again through more realistic lens than it has been in the past, and not solely through some Eurocentric version of the origins of civilization in Egypt and Mesopotamia. Equally, the Ethiopian highlands have always been a source of uh, centralized power. There's uh, a civilization that arises about 0 AD uh, in Aksum, which is a major city about 25 miles from the coast. Uh, on an in other words, its defenses included retreating from the coast and from the, the sorties of pirates uh, onto some high ground. But it was essentially a maritime power. Its leadership came from the Yemen on the other side of uh, the Red Sea. Um, there are, for example, a significant finds of Chinese pottery from the 4th century. Uh, significant finds also of, of fine worked uh, metalware from Andalusia about the same time. So Axum was clearly a major staging point in trade between the Indian Ocean and uh, the Mediterranean. And of course in the 12th century AD, Cairo took on that role. Cairo was the, the hub linking Spain and India and the Gulf from many other places. So these are places with very ancient and extensive urbanization, trade, international trade, and so on. Within West Africa, I mentioned already that uh, the ancient state of Ghana, which is not where modern Ghana is, but is uh, further on the Atlantic coast, uh, Mali, I mean, this whole area was uh, absorbed, at least the north of the forest, by the Arab conquest in the 7th century and thereafter. It seems that it was only 
After the Arab conquest and the spread of Islam, that West Africa became significantly integrated into North Africa and the, the Middle East. And I mentioned uh, my favorite story of King Musa of Mali going on the Hajj to Mecca and spending so much gold in Egypt that he called, caused runaway inflation there for 30 years. Anyway, the society of the Sahel, as it's called, which, is, um, which means the coast of the desert, there's a very ancient and highly uh, divided society there in the area, roughly speaking, that is now occupied by Mali and goes to, to Senegal and Niger and so on. This, this was a, a caste-based society with slaves and a highly elaborated division of labor, a strong differentiation. In other words, I mean, in Jack Goody's thesis about the contrast between the north and the middle of Africa, could be challenged, it would be, have to be challenged here because it's hard to see what is uh, different about the society of the Sahel. In the, the 19th century, Kano in Nigeria was a huge city. It was the center of uh, textile production for the region as a whole. Visitors commented on the size of the boulevards, uh, which were larger than any then known in Europe, and so on and so forth. Uh, Benin on the coast uh, was a similar uh, grandiose city, but in its case linked to the Atlantic slave trade, and so on. So we have to be very careful in you know, dismissing this, uh, these societies as being pre-states or or whatever, or being significantly different. Than, but the fact is that, I mean, you know, I started you out with Sheikh Antajob because it's so blatantly ideological, the attempt to refute a Eurocentric and racist version of African history. Well, unfortunately, many of the refutations take on as uh, oversimplification as well. And then we come to oceanic uh, movements and trade. I mean, there, there is no question that Africa was exposed to Indian Ocean maritime movement far earlier than to any on the Atlantic side. Although the population of the Western Mediterranean that, that, came, that established the megalithic culture uh, in uh, France, Britain, and Scandinavia, the Baltic, that megalithic culture as well as turning north, also turned south, as far south as the Senegal River. So if you look at the distribution of uh, megalithic monuments from the 3rd millennium BC we're talking about here, it seems that there is an epicenter, the oldest settlements are around Malta, in the middle of the Mediterranean. Nobody really knows what the relationship is between this civilization and the eastern Mediterranean. But in any case, uh, they, they pushed out and, and, and created, of course, the largest of these monuments was Stonehenge. If you look at the map, I mean, Britain, especially England, Ireland, and Wales, which is known as Albion, hence Perfide Albion, the treacherous Albion, as the French call us. Albion is this huge chunk of territory 
that straddles the seaways with Ireland between the Baltic and the Mediterranean. But also, uh, this civilization went south to the Senegal River. So it's all, uh, you know, and there's still a lot to be discovered here. But when we look at the Atlantic and Indian Ocean trade, I mean, what is most striking, of course, is the slave trade in both instances. I did a, a one-day workshop with archaeologists once on, on Africa and the ancient world, in which we looked at West Africa, Ethiopia, Sudan, and the Swahili coast. Now, seen from the perspective of European colonialism, the Swahili coast is the most recent and in some ways backward of these regions. I mean, the, the others assumed a, a much stronger significance earlier. And I, you know, I, even now I think of East Africa as being a bit retarded compared with uh, West Africa, shall we say. In fact, the, the result of our one-day workshop was that by far the oldest remains of maritime movement and trade were on the Swahili coast from Zimbabwe to Somalia. And of course these are linked to the Persian Gulf, the Red Sea, the Indian Ocean more generally, the earlier migrations from Southeast Asia to Madagascar and various parts of the East Coast. So this again is something that ought to be reconsidered, revised. We've discussed already the Atlantic slave trade Essentially, the, uh, the European slave traders built forts on uh, strategic points on the west coast. The dominant African powers like Dahomey, Ashante, and uh, Oyo and others situated themselves beyond the reach of, of the naval guns of uh, the Europeans. 20, 25, just like Axum, 20, 25 miles inland. I mean, these people really didn't have the means of imposing their military will on the African uh, powers that supplied them with the slaves. And the urban developments were on the coast were very limited into small settlements around these forts. One of the, the most urbanized uh, regions for uh, the longest time has been Nigeria. I mean, it's not coincidental that today one in six Africans is a Nigerian. The Niger uh, River uh, joining the Atlantic Ocean and coming up into the Sahel, the uh, Savannah region, has sustained very large populations for a long period. And as I mentioned earlier, the Yoruba towns, uh, particularly that grew up in the 19th century, uh, have been identified by some people as a candidate for an independent urban civilization in Africa. There's one anecdote that, that I like to give you a sense, of, and I can say, you know, Kano was, you know, the main textile center. What does that mean? But here's an anecdote from the early 20th century, 1905, thereabouts. The British were always looking for extra cotton supplies. So they decided that northern Nigeria was an ideal place to grow cotton. Cotton is a filthy plant to cultivate. 
It's not surprising, you know, that it was mainly work of slaves or indentured laborers or whatever. But in any case, they decided to build a railway from the Niger River to Kano, which is the biggest city in northern Nigeria. So they built a railway, expecting all the cotton to come out. But in the meantime, the Hausa merchants, who are the dominant merchant class of West Africa, as well as the dominant political class in northern Nigeria, they basically decided that the place was more suitable for groundnuts as, you know, and more profitable to them. So they went out and bought in advance groundnut crop futures from all the peasants in the region. In other words, they just advanced them some money, they grow, grow uh, groundnuts, and you know, they all had their contracts. And when the railway arrived, the station was buried under a mountain of groundnuts and northern Nigeria became one of the, the leading exporters of groundnuts in the world, as it still is. So this, I mean, this is a, a very ancient and savvy commercial civilization with its own uh, political and economic and uh, residential forms. Now, I mentioned that the Yoruba cities kind of grew and the Yoruba uh, formed themselves as a nation in the second half of the 19th century. And this links to the argument that I made earlier about the consequences of abolition uh, for West African uh, trade in slaves. You know, the, the, the stopping of the Atlantic demand for slaves did not stop the production and capture of slaves in West Africa itself, and it meant that the 19th century in West Africa was an immensely complicated, confusing, and turbulent time. There were huge migrations, lots of wars, millenarian movements on a vast scale, Christian and uh, Islamic. I mean, I mean, so I mean, it's absurd to think of the 19th century as an example of pre-colonial society, especially in West Africa, because the region was turned upside down by uh, the, you know, the end of the African slave trade. And uh, this was particularly the case in West, what is now Western Nigeria. And in fact, uh, people argue that, that the Yoruba cities are best thought of as war camps. I mean, they were large places for people to take refuge in, and they were, they were in effect, agro-cities. I mean, they had all their agriculture in the region around, and people just came home at night and stayed in the city and then went out and did their cultivation. There, there, there are lots of, uh, there's a very good book by uh, Bill Freund, called African Cities. It's published by Cambridge about 2007. It's uh, the best summary. Freud, on the whole, takes the view that, that we should ditch all of this kind of stuff and just look at the actual urban and political developments that took place in detail all over the place. So, but in the 18th and 19th centuries, especially in the 19th century, Several of the states, the African kingdoms, if you like, that we're most familiar with, kingdoms like the Zulu formed by Shaka in the 1820s, there are 
Other, as I've mentioned, very good case studies in Rodney's How Europe Underdeveloped Africa. He shows how the increasing expansion of European imperialism had the consequence of, of pushing indigenous uh, populations towards greater centralization. These were not, uh, as it were, pristine states, but states that arose in consequence of, uh, of white invasion, if you like. And the Kingdom of Uganda is another one. The Interlakushri, the Great Lakes area, is uh, the Rwanda, and the Baganda, and so on and so forth. All of these peoples uh, achieved a higher degree of centralization when faced with the, the challenge posed to the Arab slave trade uh, by uh, British uh, and other European imperialists. So, and obviously then, you know, I mean, one can multiply differences in this respect. And it's important to do so when people say, as I've heard this week, you know, well, you know, all there is in Africa is um, despotism. I mean, the fact is that there are, hadn't have been for at least a millennium, extremely complex societies with their own histories and personalities and movements and the rest of it. I mean, you just can't treat this stuff as if it's outside history, which is more or less what many people have done. Okay, so that's a very brief sketch of, of the state in Africa before the wholesale imposition of colonial empire from the 1880s. And obviously some areas of, of European settlement were older than that, but this was the time when Africa was brought into colonial empire properly. But I've argued that you should not, I mean, you know, I think we really should dump the idea that it's historically useful, epistemologically useful, to divide African history into post-colonial, colonial, pre-colonial. Pre Especially since the, the immediate pre-colonial period was the result of a wild 19th century dynamic of, of contradictory forces. So then, you know, nevertheless, if we want to look at the 20th century, it is reasonable to divide it into the periods that I've already identified. The, the three decades or so before the First World War, when financial globalization and imperialism uh, brought the world into a, a kind of economic dynamic that is reasonably familiar to us from the last three decades. And then a, a period of war and depression in which global markets declined in significance and uh, colonial and uh, post-colonial governments around the world turned towards uh, uh, internal and national uh, forms of development, followed, of course, by uh, the post-war period after 1945, when it became obvious, certainly in Asia and increasingly in the rest of the world, that the European colonial empires would have to be dismantled and replaced with something which we take to be independent states. So now, the uh, idea of the state in Africa, to the extent that it attracts generalization, mostly by non-African scholars, it has to be said, is concerned with post-colonial states. What, what is the, 
the state in post-colonial Africa, uh, why is it what it is, what are we going to call it, and so on and so forth. I mean, this is a literature that bores me to death, actually. So there, I've got here a couple of terms, or three in fact. Uh, Catherine Cochrane-Vibovich is a Marxist historian from France, and she, uh, at a time when Marxist uh, anthropology was quite dominant in the world around the 1970s, she proposed that a notion of the African mode of production, and that the African mode of production was based on capture, uh, capture of people and uh, capture of uh, profits from trading. In other words, that I mean, it's not as if it never happened anywhere else, but she's saying that these African states could not accumulate through domestic production because agriculture would have low intensity and uh, services were not easily uh, captured and stored and uh, transported. I mean, for this reason, the two preferred commodities were slaves and cattle, animals, because the people and animals have the great advantage that they can walk to wherever they're going to be sold. And uh, it, it was actually very different. I mean, most of the, of the commodities coming out of, of West Africa, for example, were high bulk and low value. The terrain was extremely difficult and costly. So there was this emphasis on people and animals who at least you know, didn't have to be carried. And in fact, uh, in the form of cattle and people, slaves, I mean, were, were the, 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 the most concentrated forms of value available. So she is saying basically that, that the, uh, the main centralized areas in West and Central Africa grew up in places where political authorities could easily draw tribute from the traders passing through. But I don't think it really took, took on. I mean, that, I mean the, the fact is that this, this description could apply to many places in the world and it's not, doesn't really capture the variety of modes of production and extraction in Africa. And normal political science, for a long time, they used the word neo-patrimonialism. Can you believe it? How many symbols? One, two, three, five, six, seven. Eight syllables, and it, do I hear nine? <laughs> so, I mean, patrimonialism is a concept of Max Weber for describing traditional forms of domination. He assumed that in pre-industrial societies, the mode of production was agriculture, predominantly, and that people would spread themselves out to get the most land they could for the labor available. So that uh, population became decentralized uh, as a result of the dominance of agriculture as a mode of production, except in those areas like rivers and irrigation schemes and so on, where agriculture was concentrated in narrower areas. So the problem for traditional authority is that production and power is necessarily dispersed. I mean, the king or whoever it is at the center 
has a very weak uh, control over people in the countryside, uh, his lieutenants, the barons, the lords, or the lord of the manor, or whoever, who are in a much better position to coerce and feed and mobilize the local population. So there's always a problem for any centralized authority of what to do about this inherent distribution of power into the periphery. Sorry, that, what I've just described is he called feudalism. That is a dispersed pattern of authority, decentralized. Patrimonialism was a particular type of traditional authority which concentrated power in the center and did so against this counterbinding tendency. So it's very unstable. Like many of Faber's ideal types, these two poles of centralization, decentralization, are kind of tugging at each other permanently with varying results. He argued that it became possible under certain circumstances for a ruler to establish a bureaucracy staffed by people personally loyal to him. So patrimonial bureaucracy is basically cut through the system of kinship and feudal loyalties that, that organize the aristocracy and the peasantry in the country. It's a staff, as he calls it. I mean, I've forgotten the German, in fact, I don't know it. So this is the English translation, obviously. I don't know if any of you have ever seen the film by Eisenstein uh, on uh, uh, Ivan the Terrible, the, you know, the Tsar of Russia. The, 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 there's a part one and two uh, wonderful uh, films about this. I mean, the, it starts with the Boyar's plot against Ivan, the, the new Tsar, and the, the lords kind of gang up against him. And, uh, he, I mean, the whole film is about how he manages to centralize his own power at their expense, and he does it basically by taking bright young boys out of the countryside, making them totally loyal to him, and then using them to uh, replace, assassinate, or undermine in other ways the, the traditional aristocracy. But there's, uh, there's one great moment in the film where he's basically losing the plot and he decides to retreat to his, uh, his uh, place in the countryside. And uh, the people of Moscow kind of come out of the city and, and make their way and kind of beg him to come back and all this kind of stuff. Anyway, that's a kind of uh, filmic enactment of the kind of drama that endemic to patrimonialism. One of the problems, if you send an official to a rural area where he can't be effectively supervised, he could use his lack of supervision to make himself into a feudal lord against you or, or whatever. So, for example, the Ethiopian monarchs of uh, the Amharic uh, dynasties would make sure that nobody stayed as an official in a rural area for more than five years, and they would move them around as a way of trying to disrupt this process of decentralization. So that's, that's patrimonialism as an idea. <laughs> Neo-patrimonialism means that all the African rulers are on the main. 
this is, you know, the, the first thing that the, the political scientists noticed were, was that you found in many post-colonial African countries presidents who were immobile, you know, who seemed to aggregate to themselves all the resources or a good part of them and stayed in power for several decades and essentially just turned the, uh, the country into an expression of themselves and their families and their clients' accumulation of wealth. And this politics of the belly, politique du ventre, of France, uh, Jean-Francois Bayard is the most successful, obviously is better than neo-patrimonialism. It's the same idea, however, that because of various conditions in African societies, presidential kleptocracy is, what can I say, a steal. It's very easy, apparently, to get away with. So the politics of the belly is a description of this collapse of the difference between public and private interests. Now, the question of the privatization of public interests is an interesting one, because Although the Western bourgeoisie claims to have instituted societies in which uh, public interest and private interest are separated, it isn't actually the case. I mean, if you look at the three main central banks, uh, the Bank of England, the Bank of France, and the Federal Reserve, in each case, the king or the president or whoever made a deal with a cartel of bankers whereby they give him the money for his wars and, and he gives them the freedom to issue money on their own terms as if they were the government. But all of these three institutions, the Bank of England, the Bank of France, the Federal Reserve, are in fact private institutions. You know, the Federal Reserve makes its decisions not based on what the, the president tells them to do, although they like to pretend that they do, Similarly, the Bank of England, the, you know, the governor of the Bank of England is not an instrument of the state. And the fact is that the people who own the Bank of England are money men in the city of London. You could argue that, I mean, the Federal Reserve is absolutely amazing. I mean, you know, 1913, seven German bankers, mostly Jewish, put themselves on an island in North Carolina got some thugs to block access to it for the weekend, so they were completely alone, drafted the, the constitution of the Federal Reserve, and then went to Washington, D.C. on the Monday morning, and it was announced as a government initiative. So, the privatization of public interest has been going on for a long time. It's not as if it was invented by African presidents. There's a very interesting account of the central bank in France before and after the French Revolution. Before, I mean, it, it looks as if the, 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 the rules under which the central bank operated were transformed, were revolutionized in 1789. But in fact, the deal between uh, political authority and private bankers before and after the revolution was more or less the same. It's just that the that the, the publicity surrounding it changed its tone. And this leads me, you know, to the question, what is it that's new about neoliberalism? 
if neoliberalism is the privatization of public interest, then we're talking about three or four hundred years at least in which this has been the dominant form of political economy in the Western world. So what is new about neoliberalism is that the corruption used to be hidden and now they make a virtue of it. That's my, uh, I mean, you know, they're trying to tell us it's the way it should be, where before they covered it up, you know, the Rothschilds, you know, didn't make a big deal about, you know, how they were pulling the strings. Now they do. Okay. This leads us to Molesi and Beckett's book, which I think is really a very good and important book, uh, published in 2009. He's the brother of Tarbo and Beckett. Uh, when Talbo was hanging out with the Glitterati in the University of Sussex, Molesi had basically broken out of his studies to join the trots in London and was a kind of tearaway trot uh, in the 60s and 70s. Brother, if you read the you know, biographies of Talbo, you will see how this was a big problem for Talbo, especially since Tabo was going that way and his brother was going the other way. Anyway, Molesi has emerged since his brother's deposition, if you like, and he's written a book called Architects of Poverty. He never attacks his brother, by the way. And he says, essentially, that, that replacing Tabo and Becky with Zuma is merely cosmetic. His argument is ostensibly against the state in Africa, as we habitually find it. But it's also a deep level critique of the ANC, which he sees as being complicit in the general form. And the main difference between him and Bayar is that uh, he emphasizes the collusion between foreign interests and domestic uh, rulers. It's not a new uh, idea. The, uh, the idea of a comparable, is a Portuguese word, bourgeoisie that simply lives off facilitating exploitation and trade with foreign uh, powers. And his argument is that this pattern goes back several centuries. It's not just a, a recent one. I mean, obviously, it's based on the same idea of stealing from the public purse, collapsing any notion of public and private interest, personalization of the accumulation of power, etc., etc., except that it helps if the French army can bail you out from time to time. So, now, Monsieur Becky has a model of development for Africa. And he, he, it's essentially a, a national capitalist model. So at the moment that I'm, that I'm saying that national capitalism is getting washed up everywhere and on the continent also, he's arguing that we need to conceive of a development strategy that would allow individual countries. He's, he's very down on regional cooperation. He doesn't like... Uh, SADC and uh, ECOWAS and uh, the AU and NEPAD and all these other attempts to approach African development from the point of view of regional collaboration. 
He's saying all you need is to be a country and you have to follow a particular development path. And his models are Switzerland and Scandinavia. He's saying if Switzerland and Scandinavia can do it, then so can we. We don't need to come together in some great or regional organization. And in fact, the only place that he can find in Africa that conforms to this Swedish-Scandinavian model is Mauritius. Uh, okay, so what's the model? The model is you go for manufacturers. Manufacturers is the strategic sector. And secondly, you raise the quality of your labor force through education, training, and the rest of it. In other words, you go for a higher productivity labor force based on the development of their skills and the application of machines to production. There's nothing so unusual about this. I think it's a bit antiquated in some ways, you know, given well, what I'll be talking about on Friday. Now, how do you develop these manufacturers? Obviously, you have to draw on foreign suppliers, people who can help you to establish this machinery and the rest of it. But from the beginning, you use your political power to write them out of the script in the medium term. He claims that this is what the Chinese have done. It's very interesting looking at the difference between China and India since 1950, the second half of the 20th. I mean, the Indians decided that they would build their own industrial capacity, so they wouldn't have an oil industry until they could produce uh, the, the rigs and all of the rest of it themselves. The Chinese developed their oil industry using Western technologies. And so they developed them earlier. In fact, to some extent, the development gap between India and China is because of this. The, the Chinese going earlier because they were less concerned about conceding power to Western oil companies or, or whatever. Uh, but according to Malesi and Becky, the Chinese made sure that uh, before long, I mean quite soon, they were in charge of the process and able to become less dependent on foreign suppliers and internalize the whole process and so on. So this is Becky's model, if you like. Forget regional cooperation, any country play, look at Finland kind of thing. You've just got to be sure that you put all your effort into improving the quality of your labor force and embarking on uh, high-tech uh, manufacturers strategy, which he claims is what Mauritius has done. You know, they're into some IT, you know, high-end tourism, you know, whatever. And there's much more to the book than that, but I mean, this guy, I really think, is one of the few people that I've come across anywhere, not just in South Africa, who is thinking for himself and has a, a, has a, a method and a system, and you can argue with him. You know, I mean, and uh, I like him a lot, actually. And uh, I, I like the book, Architects in Poverty. In fact, the article that Vishnu Padayachi and I wrote in the Political Economy of Africa on South Africa in Africa, 
starts with about two pages summarizing uh, his position. You can't do more than that. I mean, launch your own work on a framework established by somebody else. Bayard, I mean, is really a pain in the ass, I think. You know, I mean, it's just an endless accumulation of bits and pieces of francophone political history that he knows about. And, uh, I mean, you know, I mean, okay, so the book has been translated into English and it is accepted, you know, by many people as authoritative as is he. He is the doyen of, of African studies in Paris. And, uh, but there's actually another one. I'll tell you about that next time. That's it. Thank you.